Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am the host of the Guidelines podcast. Tonight, our topic is methodology of guideline development. And this is one of few guidelines podcasts that won't uh, have a specific focus on any certain disease or, or section than neurological surgery, but will instead discuss the broader topic of how uh, our national neurosurgery leadership and the specific uh, leadership within each section goes about the process of developing a guideline topic. And I think these this series of, of podcasts should be a great learning experience for podcasts uh, or for our listeners overall and, and serve as a good basis for understanding uh, guidelines as, they're, as they come out. Tonight, I have the privilege of welcoming two of uh, the section guideline leads. First, uh, Dr. Jeff Olson is professor of neurosurgery at Emory. Uh, he is the tumor section guideline lead. We also have Dan Ho, who's professor of neurosurgery at University of Florida. He is the spine section guideline lead. I have known uh, both of our guests for many years. I uh, have worked with Jeff on various uh, tumor section guidelines podcasts. And, you know, as a small side note, uh, Dan and I were uh, co-residents uh, at USC together. So to start, what, I, what I've asked our uh, guests to do is to, to basically give us an overview of the genesis and development of guideline topics within their uh, specific uh, section and maybe uh, through this process, fill us in on any differences in the ways uh, that their section might approach the process. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Olson. Thanks. I just wanted to say that uh, I appreciate the chance to talk about this. It's a little bit of an arcane topic, but there is a methodology we go through. I will speak to this mainly biased towards what the tumor section does. The uh, genesis is usually from the tumor section guidelines committee or the executive committee. We decided we want to work on a topic such as low-grade gliomas, progressive glioblastoma, and what have you. Knowing that topic, then we come up with a, um, a group of individuals who are interested in writing. It's mainly people from the tumor section, but as you might imagine, for instance, with um, progressive glioblastoma, we need experts in imaging, radiation therapy, you know, medical oncology, and so on. So we end up bringing in other experts. And with that group, then we can design a, a group of what we think are pertinent questions related to the topic that we think folks would want to know about. The uh, questions are usually designed in a manner that we refer to as a PICO format, where you look at the uh, patient population, the intervention you're interested in, what you're comparing it to, and uh, what the outcome is. And so with that information, then we can create searches. We do searches with uh, Medline, Embase, Cochrane, and so on. That's fairly extensive, and we often come up with literally thousands of citations. And with those citations, the writing group then sorts them based on predetermined criteria. And we're fairly specific about what those criteria are. We end up, end up actually reading the whole paper and making sure that it meets the criteria that we expected. Then we develop evidence tables and recommendations from there. The data is classified from randomized perspective studies, which are class one studies, to well-designed phase two randomized studies, which um, might be class two data, and then case report series and things like that, which are really class three um, or, you know, expert opinion, which really doesn't usually meet what we want for uh, data support. And then we translate those data classes into levels of recommendation. So, if you have one or two prospective randomized studies, a nice done phase three study uh, will become level one data. 
similarly, class two data becomes level two data and class three data becomes uh, level three recommendations. And uh, from there with those recommendations, then we write up a text uh, sort of supporting how we came up with that idea, pass it by the joint guidelines uh, review committee, and eventually it makes it to publication in a uh, journal of our choice. Uh, that's it in a very fast nutshell, and I'm happy to expand more as needed. Great. Dan, do you want to uh, take a couple minutes and, and maybe give us sort of your view on things from the spine section? Yeah. Th thanks, Brad. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. That was a great uh, overview of the whole process. Uh, I'll just start by saying, and you know, it's a real pleasure and honor to be on, on, on this podcast that's you know, being presented by the CNS. As, as uh, probably many of the listeners know, the CNS has really been a leader and innovator in the field of, of guidelines. And if you look at the um, history of guidelines within nurse surgery, it really date back to some of the first guidelines that were done in, in, in cooperation with the CNS. So that being said, I'll say that uh, uh, very much from the spine section standpoint, the generation guidelines uh, follow very much uh, the process as Jeff described them. This is a very uh, transparent process that's uh, somewhat standardized and universally understood. Uh, the spine section very much adopts the concept of PICO questions, uh, just as Jeff described. And, and just for, from a historical context, if you look at some of the initial spine guidelines, they were real, they were not PICO um, focused. And so they were very much like systematic reviews of the evidence, which is great. But there was clearly an understanding that the purpose of guidelines, if you really think about it, is, you know, for the clinician in their practice, they're in clinic and they're seeing a patient, and they're trying to make that tough decision about what to do, whether it's surgery or not surgery, or what kind of procedure, uh, or even diagnostic testing, you know, what's the right diagnostic test. And, you know, the idea behind guidelines is, is what does the evidence tell us to help us make that best decision? Now, um, that's really the concept behind PICO questions, as, as Jeff had mentioned. And so, the genesis of a guideline starts with the, within the section where we identify a broad topic, I'll use as an example, um, lumbar degenerative disease that we think will be relevant to neurosurgeons or spine surgeons, and then assembling a, a task force, which ideally um, would be a multidisciplinary task force. So within spine, typically, even if it's um, being um, created through a neurosurgery group, will oftentimes include orthopedics um, or anesthesia or pain management or whatnot. And then really within that broad topic, then creating subtopics that are are really relevant to the clinician and then developing PICO questions uh, centered around that. So again, I'll use another example. We had done a podcast of the series earlier where we talked about one of the guidelines related to the thoracic lumbar trauma. And, you know, we asked a very simple PICO question that often comes up when someone has a, a, a neuro intact burst fracture, you know, do you brace or do you not brace? And that's a question that comes up all the time and there's good evidence about it. So that's really how we generate the guidelines. So again, coming up with a broad topic that we think is relevant to um, our constituents, developing the PICO questions that are really at heart, the common questions that every practicing neurosurgeon in the clinic or in the ER or seeing a patient on the you know, as a consult says, okay, in this situation, you know, what do I do? What does the evidence tell us? And then developing the PICO questions around and generating the evidence. You know, Jeff really alluded to the mechanics of all this, which all goes down to before you even do the evidence-based review, having a very clear, transparent system by which you're going to process that evidence. And so a priori deciding, okay, this is how we're going to query our evidence 
what's our inclusion criteria, what's our exclusion criteria, when we get the evidence, how are we gonna classify level one versus level two, level three? Are there criteria for which we may have to downgrade evidence, meaning that it initially seemed like level one evidence was a randomized controlled trial, but based on limitations with regards to either follow-up or reporting or missing data, it gets downgraded. And then you collate all that and then you use the system to then say, okay, based on the evidence, does all of the evidence point to one direction? Is there conflicting evidence or is there insufficient evidence? And that's where the recommendations come from. That was a great overview. And, and I think it you kind of lead into one of my first questions. And I, and I think it's, it's something that I struggle answer, answering succinctly sometimes is how much data, how many papers, you know, if does one class one equal three class two, you know, what do you need to really uh, put forth a recommendation for or against something? Like what, what sort of is that data minimum? Uh, from my standpoint, at least with the tumor section, if um, you have a well done study, for instance, by ASCO or Astro, and they, they can do pretty large studies with their group and it's a uh, level one data for or against something, uh, we're willing to use that it becomes stronger if there's level two and level three data that maybe supports that. Uh, but it, there is not an exact number. Similarly, if there's uh, 10 level three studies, or class, excuse me, class three studies, uh, that will not somehow upgrade something to a level two recommendation. It's still class three data, so it remains a level three recommendation. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, um, you know, I think a really important part about if you're an interested reader and you're looking at a set of guidelines, it's the boring part that probably no one wants to read, but is to read the methodology section because it will have very clear, clearly outlined in transparent form, you know, the, the, the classification and the method by which a level one recommendation is made or a level two. And as, as Jeff said, you know, that's just something that's decided a priori, you know, does a, a level, you know, is a level one evidence, a single level one study trump to, you know, two high quality level two and whatnot. And that actually can differ depending on the methodology used and, and, and the guideline and, and the society or the organization that's supporting it. So the reality is, is that will be very clearly outlined in the methodology. That's, I think that's an important part to look at if you're really going to dive deep into a guideline and understand how the task force came to the recommendations that they did. I think Dan brings up a good point about the methodology and we are fortunate in that the, what we do is actually on the CNS website, the uh, methodology for guidelines development. Anybody has access to that, it's, uh, it's open. And it um, makes it relatively clear in a remarkably succinct fashion. There's, there's lots of nuance to it, but uh, anybody can access that and understand what it is that we're up to. So when you do have, when you have conflicting studies, what's the process for reconciling that? Um, is it, you know, a six for one side, three for another, or is there a certain amount of, if there's too many on, on both sides, is, is it just never going to rise to the level of a recommendation or a high level recommendation? Well, certainly if there's conflict, it will not. We usually have meetings either um, via email or otherwise regarding things like that and work it out amongst ourselves. Almost always there is some sort of a deal breaker or something about a paper that may be conflicting that either takes it out of the running or makes it more important. 
At the end of our discussion for each question that we develop, we have a synthesis section, and that's where we hash out those uncertainties so that the readers know that we also see conflict. And not infrequently, we will end up either downgrading our recommendation or simply stating there's conflicting and insufficient data and state we can't make a recommendation. And I think that's the most honest thing to do. I think it helps the readers see that this is still uh, uh, you know, an area that's still in development. Yeah, I, I, I'll just add, I think that's a great, great question, Brad. And, and, and it can be, it can seem frustrating that more often than not, sometimes we, we come to a conclusion that there's conflicting evidence. And just, just to be clear, I mean, usually the systems that are used, um, we're not making recommendations based off of level three or level four studies. These are largely based off of high quality level one or level two studies. And so if you really truly come to a determination that there's conflicting evidence, then, you know, then that means something that there is, studies that high quality studies that have come to different conclusions. And so just as Jeff said, I think that that's where it can be really interesting to read the discussion sections. I will say that for um, certain topics and, and PICO questions for which there have been conflicting evidence or insufficient evidence, the task force, while it's not a recommendation, can make a suggestion that's sort of like a expert consensus recommendation. Um, News as an example from a, a set of guidelines that came out for the preoperative optimization of patients that are going spine surgery. We looked at a very relevant PICO question about the relationship of obesity and BMI in elevated BMI in patients undergoing surgery. And as one would expect, um, you know, there are a number of studies demonstrating the relationship between um, adverse outcomes and elevated BMI and severe obesity, but. Believe it or not, there are also some studies that say you can do surgery in properly selected patients with elevated BMI and have equal outcomes. So that, by definition, was a conflicting assessment. So we made a, a consensus suggestion, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, that said, despite these conflicting studies, the, you know, the preponderance of studies suggesting this relationship between adverse outcomes would suggest, yep. you know, that patients with elevated BMI be properly counseled, counseled before elective surgery about that potential relationship. Is, is it possible or has it ever happened where level one recommendation has been published that, that subsequent to that, I mean, is that, by the time that that gets made, is that pretty set in stone or have you ever had to walk one of something like that back in a future, in a subsequent publication? I personally have not been involved in that. We have had publications, for instance, the first low-grade glioma guidelines, the use of uh, chemotherapy was not recommended very strongly in adults. One month after our publication, ASTRO, or excuse me, ASCO came out with a uh, level one well-done study, class one well-done study, and we had to create an editorial modifying um, our recommendation to a uh, level one for chemotherapy in adults uh, with low-grade gliomas. I've seen it go the other way. I've never had to particularly retract anything. Maybe I shouldn't say that too soon. But I think it, it brings up a great point, Brad, that really um, rigorous guidelines methodology is such that there should be a, an update. It used to be that the recommendation that an update be done every 10 years, but now the the standard is that an update should be done every five years. Now, it may not mean that there has been new evidence that changes the guidelines in five years, but that at least the process for reviewing 
evidence uh, for any new for new data um, should be done every five years. And that, as you can probably imagine, given the timeline it takes to do all of the things that Jeff just, just you know Jeff described in the introduction. I mean, it's gosh, I want to say it, by the time you publish your guidelines, it's almost about time to start turning around and creating your task force to do the uh, the five year update. And in your views, how should neurosurgeons use a guidelines? Um, you gave the example of I'm in clinic and you have somebody with a you know a, a specific uh, finding, you know, burst fracture, what what have you. But how, but how are do are the guidelines really intended to be used? I mean, is it just clinical practice, or is this something? I mean, do do guidelines bleed into uh, insurance companies? Do they bleed into industry? Like, how how what's your intent, and what is it that you're actually seeing? Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just uh, mention briefly. I mean, really, they're not intended to be used for things like litigation or uh, insurance um, authorization and, and so forth. I mean, they are really meant to be, I would suggest two things. One is for clinical practice to identify best practices and, and, and based on the evidence. And the second is to identify knowledge gaps and areas for which future work needs to be done. So I'll go back to one of the questions you asked or, or one of the things we talked about earlier is if there's conflicting evidence or insufficient evidence, I would suggest that's a real call to uh, researchers in the area to say, okay, this is an area that we need to do further research. This is a knowledge gap. Um, that being said, I will say that um, for uh, within organized neurosurgery, um, I'll use as an example, um, there's a payer policy uh, rapid response team for the spine section, which addresses um, insurance denials and those kind of things. And when there is a published guideline that directly addresses the topic for which an insurance is denying preauthorization, I mean, that is an incredible, you know, um, um, ammunition for this, for the society to be able to say to a private payer and say, well, right. you're making a coverage decision that contradicts, you know, evidence-based guidelines. I think in support of what uh, Dan was saying, the, the use of guidelines for clinical practices is, is, um, is very good. You, if you become familiar with them, for instance, if you're counseling a patient with a vestibular schwannoma about curing preservation with surgery, radiation, or observation, the guidelines address that very directly. And you can just hearken back to that and say, here's information. You can even give the patient the resource and let them look at it and learn about it. As far as use in insurance activities or litigation, we work very hard to make a careful statement at the end of each guideline uh, chapter or section that patient care is individualized and it may not follow exactly the uh, parameters that we describe in the guideline. And I think probably the most, uh, the, probably the most enjoyable part for me is uh, what Dan was saying is it's a point of departure on what we don't know. You realize, heaven's sakes, we've been making these huge assumptions that we know such and such a thing. And sure enough, there is not great data supporting that. And you can turn right around and come up with a study to address that. Are there any topics in either of your fields that seem to, that you wish you could answer that are, that people ask about that just seem to defy an ability to generate a guideline? Well, I'll just say, I think the areas that are always the, the toughest are the ones for where there is limited evidence, right? I mean, um, there are, we're in a field, uh, neurosurgery, whether you do brain tumor surgery or spine surgery, there are elements to our fields that are 
rare or unusual conditions, right? But it doesn't mean that they don't happen. And if they're rare and unusual, the likelihood of there being high quality evidence that is beyond a level three, you know, case series or something like that, you know, can be, can, you know, is, 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 is certainly can be the case. And so, you know, um, if you look at, for example, the existing guidelines uh, in neurosurgery for spine, they're, they're the very common thing, lumbar degenerative disease, cervical degenerative disease, cervical spinal cord injury, thoracolumbar lumbar trauma. And right now we're in the, in the uh, we've just published preoperative optimization uh, guidelines and we're working mm-hmm. on intraoperative and postoperative. So those are the common things. But metastatic spine disease, although that's not rare, you know, that's a guideline that's very much need to be um, generated. I know that's been, been, been in the, in the, in the works for a while now, how you deal with infections in the spine, you know, and that's a becoming seemingly becoming a much more common problem that we see, you know, epidural abscesses, osteomyelitis, and this guy, this, right. you know, the, the, the existing literature, you know, the, the availability of this existing literature might make that difficult to generate real, you know, you know, usable guidelines. I think we have to, it's sort of hard to criticize my own specialty, but uh, neurosurgeons um, have strong opinions. And for instance, in uh, the argument about the use of oic craniotomies versus, um, you know, other technologies for mapping and so on, uh, it has been essentially impossible to convince neurosurgeons to, quote, randomize, unquote, patients between an oic craniotomy versus um, other technologies in terms of safety and extent of tumor resection and so on. Uh, and we've run into that with uh, a lot of things. We can't come up with high quality data because we can't accrue. Uh, and so if you're looking for a problem, that's an example of it. And that's, I'm sure Dan runs into that with, you know, simple things like lumbar fusions. You know, there are some that really believe in it and some say, I'm not doing that. It, uh, it does limit our ability to have what would otherwise be higher quality data. Great. Well, we're running a little low on time. I do want to give each of our guests an opportunity. What, what did I miss? What questions or what, what information do you think the listener needs to really kind of tie all this together? I'll, I'll jump in. I'll just say this, that, um, you know, there are mechanisms in place. Uh, if you, uh, for listeners who are interested in proposing guidelines topics, um, for future uh, development that can be done through the section and or through the CNS. Um, there is a joint guidelines review committee also that I think would also be a, an avenue for doing that. And there is certainly plenty of opportunities to serve uh, a task force committee. Um, so recently for the spine section, the guidelines we're working on, we recruited and enlisted a strong group of resident volunteers to help with the initial screening processes of the abstracts, which is a huge um, workload. And so um, thanks to them and uh, as they work on this. So for the listeners who are interested in in getting involved, um, there's certainly a lot of opportunities to do that. How many abstracts was that? Just just off the top of your head. Are we talking 500, 600? It was in the thousands. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very large number if I'm, if I'm recalling Jeff, final thoughts? I was going to echo uh, what Dan said, uh, that there is uh, lots of room for new ideas. Um, In my experience, the best new ideas and the best writers are motivated medical students, residents, young fellows and faculty members who have all these fresh questions in their mind. And I find it refreshing. 
And I would certainly encourage them to participate, um, find their way into the mechanisms of getting this going. It's not as hard as you might think. And uh, we appreciate uh, the new and good ideas. Great. Well, I want to thank both of our guests for joining us tonight. I also want to just thank them for all the work that they do as, as section leads for these for the guidelines. It is a uh, tremendous amount of work that goes into this, and it's um, you know I, I think a lot of that work uh, to some degree goes unseen uh, uh, when you when you're looking at the paper, just the thousands of hours that go into it. I I had Dan just tell us the number of abstracts just so just so you get a, a brief glimpse of of how much time and effort has to go into each of these projects and as as section leads you're managing all of them so I, I thank you both very much for our listeners uh, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines topics and podcasts and uh, to our guests and our listeners have a great night thank you very much